And so, we had less than a week to go until the most important election in Scotland since devolution. They're all fighting for your vote, but I think you and I know who the First Minister will be next month. Nicola Sturgeon is a clear favourite to win Holyrood. Momentum grows for Labour in the battle for seats at Holyrood. Pressure on the Prime Minister in allegations over Covid remarks. And reshaping the border between Scotland and England. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Holyrood. Scotland needs no lectures about tough choices. We have suffered a decade of Tory austerity. Again, a bit like Brexit, completely against our will. We're other countries chose to deal uh, with the financial crash differently. This is about choices, but it's about choices that we make as a country and are able to take ourselves, not choices that are imposed upon us, which is Scotland's experience all too often right now. There's less than one week to go on the only show in town, the 2021 Scottish Parliamentary Election Campaign. It's a campaign seasoned veterans, including myself, are describing as strange, It's certainly that, all right. It's one of those campaigns where we believe we know the outcome unless you, the voter, is playing havoc with the politicians and the journalists. Nicola Sturgeon takes nothing for granted, but I expect her to be returned as leader of the largest party in Holyrood and continue in her role as First Minister. But will she again lead a minority administration or will her handling of the economy, education, justice and the pandemic encourage the people to give her the majority she craves. Second place has never been so important in Holyrood as it is in this election. The Tories were the second largest party in the last parliament. Can they maintain that status under their new leader Douglas Ross or will Labour, under its new leader, Anas Sarwar, eclipse them to be the official opposition? There are two stories threading through this campaign, independence versus the union, and who will come second? Talking of which, hold on to your seats, as this week Channel 4 News wrapped the leaders into their nightly programme. The five were socially distanced and appeared to be in a cavern or a dungeon in deepest Glasgow. It was a bit of a shouty experience and at times sounded like a sturdy drama. Douglas Ross persisted in shouting at Nicola Sturgeon saying, you took your eyes off the ball. The Daily Record's political editor Paul Hutchin describes the programme as tedious. He concludes there's only one obvious outcome of the campaign. Nicola Sturgeon will be returned as First Minister. Here's but a flavour of the debate on Channel 4. Well, Douglas Ross, you wanted to keep Boris Johnson away from this campaign. He's not here, but the scandal around him is very much present in Scotland. There are now three different news organisations who double-sourced the claim that Boris Johnson said let the bodies pile high in their thousands with regard to the second lockdown. Do you believe Boris Johnson's denial? Do you stand with him? Those comments are unacceptable from anyone, whatever level of elected office or any individual at all. And I would never support those comments. But the Prime Minister has said he did not make them. He has been very clear he did not make those comments. Do you believe him? Yes. He is someone who was taken into intensive care himself. He saw it firsthand what our nurses and doctors had to do to protect lives at the peak of this pandemic. And I believe him when he says he did not make the remarks that have been attributed to him. But I say again, those are appalling, unacceptable remarks. I mean, he's a man who's been sacked for lying in the past, but you believe him on this? I believe he did not make those comments. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon, I'm sure you're enjoying this particular scandal, but I mean, you've been accused of being the pot calling the kettle black when it comes to allegations of uh, the stench of sleaze. I mean, can you really take any moral high ground given the long list of sexual impropriety claims that have come from members of your party? Uh, Look, I was investigated over allegations of breaching the ministerial code and I was cleared over those allegations. But rightly, given the allegations were made, I was investigated and I was subject to months of intense scrutiny. I'm talking about all the others, all the people who had to resign. When uh, allegations about others come forward, uh, we investigate them, we take appropriate action. In fact, uh, you mentioned Alex Hammond. In some ways, it's because he didn't like the fact that I wouldn't cover up allegations that led to the the, the differences of opinion between us. But I'm I'm staggered by Douglas Ross's 
may I say it, hypocrisy here, because when I faced those allegations, he called for my resignation before I'd had any opportunity to even defend myself. Of course, I was subsequently cleared of the allegations against me. And yet he stands here tonight when the allegations are about his own boss. He simply says we've got to accept his word. There is a stench of sleaze around this UK Tory government. They're acting as if the rules only apply to other people and that they and their wealthy friends can act with impunity, make and spend money however they want, and somehow they're untouchable. Well, I think the message for people across Scotland and indeed in the rest of the UK where there are elections next week is show them they're not untouchable. Douglas and actually, Ross. the rules apply to them Nicola as well. Sturgeon. You'd Nicola. like to see Boris Johnson presumably face a day of questioning the way Nicola Sturgeon... I am sure there will be investigations and inquiries into all of this. We know with the lobbying situation there are eight separate inquiries underway. But Nicola Sturgeon says she investigates every single claim against an SNP politician. Can Nicola Sturgeon explain the outcome of the investigation into her disgraced ex-former finance minister, which lasted over a year, and the people of Scotland still don't know what was going on. Nicola? Uh, he's no longer in the SNP. But he was for um, a year. We you can't investigate people that. that are not in the SNP, but Douglas really has to so, answer sorry, for... Douglas's modus well, operandi well, you have here. to answer for the members of your party. Sure, There's been ministers, people in Westminster... I think anybody watching this will have seen that I have not escaped having to answer for members of my own Derek party. The investigation lasted a year. But, this is, but hold on, let me finish this point. Douglas's modus operandi here is that when it's allegations against an opponent, he calls it out and he calls for resignations before they even get the chance to defend themselves. But when it's allegations against his own side, he rushes to their defence. There needs to be a proper, full, uh, comprehensive investigation into all of the allegations, whether it's David Cameron, and Robin, Boris Johnson's text messages, or these disgraceful comments that he's accused of. Anasawa, I mean, the Labour Party should be profiting from all of this, and you're not. And it's partly because Keir Starmer is not making his voice heard or pinning any of it on anyone. Look, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that, but, but Christian, to be frank, we deserve better than this. I mean, you, you saw right at the top of your news report the consequences of when you leave bodies piling and, frankly, horrific, the scenes coming from India. Um, and we risk seeing those scenes here, and that's why we had to take urgent action. And the thing that Douglas can't hide behind is the very fact that people can think it's believable that the Prime Minister may have said that is in itself a damning indictment on the Prime Minister. But there's something much more... So do you believe the Prime Minister's lying? Well, I, I let other people judge that. But so what do you think? Well, I, I, all I'm saying is his character would suggest he's not above making that kind of comment. But the important point is this, is this is a clear fault line in our politics in Scotland, where we have failure after failure in Scotland, but it's easier for Nicola Sturgeon to point at Douglas Ross and the Tories and say, at least we're not as bad as that lot. And that demonstrates why we need to have both a better opposition in Scotland, but also, frankly, a better government so we can confront the issues that the people of Scotland face. Willie Rennie. Yeah, this is it's utterly depressing that we have competing claims of sleaze and contacts and money. When we see the scenes in India, it's a tragedy unfolding, and it should put everything into context. It should sober us up. And that's why I think we don't want to spend the next five years arguing about independence. We want to focus on the recovery and trying to get this country back into a fit shape. We've seen over the last five days bitter arguments over borders, over currency, over the European Union. I think we should be focusing on the recovery and the things that benefit people in their daily lives. And the current argument in Scottish politics with these two does not help. We need to focus on trying to get this country back on track, but it's utterly depressing. In fact, it's grotesque that we have these competing claims of sleaze when so many people are suffering. Patrick Harvey, do you, do you accept that Nicola Sturgeon has answered all the questions? Or, I mean, have you given them a free pass because you agree on independence? We certainly haven't done that. Uh, the, the reality is that the allegations on the ministerial code found that there wasn't a breach in Scotland, whereas in Boris Johnson's case, he's someone who kept his Home Secretary in office even when she had been But there was a terrible failure of the, the complainants court. in that case, the, which still hasn't been addressed. Absolutely, and I think there are members of the, the Parliamentary Committee who clearly breached the confidence of the, the witnesses, the original complainants, uh, and uh, that has to be investigated by the new Parliament. But look, 
everybody, uh, or most people here, I think, have said uh, it's depressing that this uh, stench of sleaze is, is what our election might be about. I don't think our election has to be about that. Yes, I know a lot of people uh, you know, hear this kind of stuff about the Westminster government, and they're not very surprised. I, don't think there's a, I think there's a rock-bottom level of confidence in the Westminster government in Scotland. But the election that we have right now is about giving people in Scotland the option to choose between two possible paths for our country. One, as a small, independent country trying to get back into Europe, or the other is as part of Boris Johnson's Brexit Britain. Momentum appears to be with Labour in the final week of the election. There have been four polls suggesting a drop in support for the SNP, although it remains said to be the largest party after the 6th of May, and retain government. There's now an 11-point difference between SNP support on the constituency vote compared with that on the regional list. The battle for second place continues between the Conservatives and Labour. And there's yet another two-way push between the Lib Dems and the Greens. Both are keen to add to their current tally, the headline difference between them being the Constitution. The Lib Dems want to remain in the UK Union, The Greens want independence and, as revealed on this programme last week, to achieve that within the five years of the new administration. Then there's the Alaba Party, launched two days after Holyrood went into election recess. Alaba set its sights on what it calls a supermajority for independence. Its impact, according to three out of the four opinion polls, has it struggling with 1-3% to of the vote, although one pollster consistently rates Alaba at 6%. Its leader, Alex Hammond, says he's ready to shake up the election. You see, for many, many people in Scotland, particularly working-class Scotland, uh, independence is now virtually a given. You know, it's not really an argument anymore with lots of people. The argument is about how you get it and when you get it and whether politicians are going to get on with it or just keep talking about it. And when the Alapa message comes across loud and clear on the urgency with which we give to independence and the fact that we can boost the number of independence MSPs in the Scots Parliament, that's pretty irresistible. I mean, in Glasgow yesterday, all I had to say for was, look, 100,000 people voted SNP on the list and got absolutely zero to turn. Not a single MSP elected from the city of Glasgow on the list for the SNP. But if half of these folk transferred to Alapa, then all four of the Alaba candidates will likely be elected. Now, that's a pretty strong argument, and for an independent supporter, an irresistible one. And that's had some people claiming that you're trying to game the election. Yes, well, luckily for us, there's been a, an opinion poll with this, hasn't there? The panel-based poll, which was released yesterday, uh, and that was put to the public of Scotland. Did they think we were trying to game the system or we had title to stand just like everybody else? And three-quarters of people across the parties uh, thought that we weren't gaming the system, we were entitled to stand, and we were quite right if we wanted to stand on the list. And 90%, 90% of SNP voters thought that. So, you know, whatever you know, the uh, accusations or the, the brickbats that are thrown at you by the high hegens and your political opponents, when it comes to ordinary common sense, and you say to the public, are we entitled to put up candidates on the list, and you can vote for us if you like, most Ordinary folks say, yeah, absolutely. And 90% of SNP voters can see the entitlement of Alaba to boot up candidates in the list, hopefully to boost the number of independent supporting MSPs in the next parliament. This supermajority that we're always talking about. As you heard earlier, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson is facing continuing criticism over his alleged comments on COVID. Boris Johnson denies saying he would rather let the bodies pile high in their thousands than go into another lockdown. The SNP's Westminster leader, Ian Blackford, asked him directly in the Commons if he was a liar. Mr Speaker, over 127,000 people have died from Covid in the United Kingdom. People have lost their mothers and fathers, their grandparents and even their children. NHS staff have given their all, fighting to keep people alive. That's why so many people find the Prime Minister's remark that he would rather let their bodies pile high in their thousands than go into lockdown utterly, utterly sickening. The BBC and ITV have multiple sources confirming that this is what the Prime Minister said. People are willing to go under oath, Mr Speaker, confirming that the Prime Minister said these exact words, under oath, Mr Speaker. Now, 
parliamentary rules stop me from saying that the Prime Minister has repeatedly lied to the public over the last week. But can I ask the question, are you a liar, Prime Minister? Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, I, I, I leave it to you to judge whether the uh, right honourable gentleman's uh, remarks were in order. But I, what I will say to him is that... Just say, unfortunately, Rinaldo, but we're not savoury and not what we would expect. I'm grateful to you, Mr Speaker. Uh, But what I would say to the uh, right honourable uh, gentleman is that if he is going to relay that kind of uh, of quotation, it is up to him in a place like Parliament uh, to produce the author. Uh, the person who uh, claims to have heard it, because uh, I can't find them. Uh, he says that they're willing to, to go on oath. Perhaps they're, they're sitting somewhere in this, in this building. I rather doubt it, uh, because, uh, because I didn't say those words. What I do believe is that a lockdown is a miserable, miserable thing, and I did everything I could to try to protect the British public throughout the pandemic, to protect them from lockdowns, but also to protect them uh, from disease. And he's right to draw attention to the, to the, to the wretched uh, toll uh, that, that COVID has has brought. And we grieve, and I know the whole House grieves for every family that has lost a loved one. It has, been a, it has been a horrendous time. But it is thanks to that lockdown and the vaccine rollout, combined with the vaccine rollout, that we are making the progress we are. And I, I, and I, and I may say uh, we're making progress across the whole of the United Kingdom. Let's go back to Ian Blackford. Ian. Thank you, Mr Speaker. And of course, it's the Prime Minister's behaviour which is not in order. This is a Prime Minister who is up to his neck and a swamp of Tory sleaze. We've seen contracts for cronies, texts for tax breaks, and cash for curtains. The Prime Minister has dodged these questions all week, and he's dodged them again today. But these questions simply are not going to go away. So when exactly was money funneled through Tory HQ into his personal bank account? When did he pay back this money? Was it an interest-free loan? And who is the donor or donors who originally funded it? Is the Prime Minister aware that if he continues to fail to answer these questions, that the Electoral Commission has the powers to prosecute him. Will the Prime Minister publish these details today? Or is he going to wait until the police come knocking at his door? Yeah, uh, uh, Mr Speaker, I, as I've said, I, I look forward to what the Electoral Commission has to, uh, has to say, uh, but I can tell him that uh, for the rest of it, he's talking complete nonsense. And uh, it is, um, the only thing I, I will say is that uh, it is thanks to our investment uh, in, uh, in policing uh, that we are going to have another 20,000 more officers on the, on the, street, uh, of our, of the streets of our country. And that is a fantastic thing. Uh, and, and we will be making sure that that gets through uh, to Scotland as well. What we want to see... What we want to see is a Scottish nationalist government stop obsessing about breaking up our country, which is all they, all they can think about and talk about, and talk about tackling crime and using that investment to fight crime, which is, I think, what the people of Scotland want to see. The UK Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, took the same line with a different vocabulary. He also raises the issue that's causing consternation across Whitehall. Who paid to paper and paint Boris and Carrie's flat above the office? in Downing Street. Mr Speaker, it was reported this week, including in the Daily Mail, the BBC and ITV, backed up by numerous sources, that at the end of October, the Prime Minister said he would rather have, and I quote, bodies pile high than implement another lockdown. Can the Prime Minister tell the House categorically, yes or no, did he make those remarks or remarks to that effect? Prime Minister. No, Mr Speaker. And I think what I think uh, the, the right honourable gentleman is a, is a lawyer, I'm given to understand. I think uh, that if he's going to repeat allegations like that, uh, he should come to this House and substantiate those allegations and say, and say where he heard them and who, who, exactly, who exactly is supposed to have said those. Who exactly is supposed to have said those things, Mr Speaker? Uh, because uh, what I certainly can tell him, uh, and he asked about the October decisions, they were very bitter, very difficult decisions, as they would be for any Prime Minister, Mr Speaker, because no one wants to put this country uh, into a lockdown with all the consequences that means for loss of education, for the damage uh, to people's life chances, to the huge medical backlog that, that it entails. But it was thanks to that lockdown the tough decision that we took 
Mr Speaker, that, that, and thanks to the heroic efforts of the British people, that we have got through to the, this stage in the pandemic where we find ourselves rolling out our vaccine, where we've done 50% of the population, 25% of the adult population have now had two doses, Mr Speaker. And I want to, I, I, lockdowns, lockdowns are miserable. Lockdowns are appalling things to have to do. But I, I have to say that I believe that we had absolutely no choice. Yes, well, somebody here isn't telling the truth. The House will have heard the Prime Minister's answer, and I remind him the Ministerial Code says, and I quote, ministers who knowingly mislead Parliament will be expected to offer their resignation. I'll leave it there for now. Turning to another issue, who, who, there will be further on this, there will be further on this, believe you me, who initially, and Prime Minister initially is the key word here, who initially paid for the redecoration of his Downing Street flat. Uh, well, Mr Speaker, when it comes to misleading Parliament, he may recollect that it was only a few weeks ago uh, that he said uh, that, he, so he, that he didn't oppose this government, uh, this country staying in the, uh, leaving the European Medicines Agency. The fact that he was then uh, forced to retract and leaving the European Medicines Agency was absolutely invaluable uh, for our vaccine rollout. And actually, it was just last week uh, that, he, that he said that James Dyson, he said that James Dyson was a, a personal friend of mine, uh, a fact that James Dyson has corrected uh, in the newspaper this morning. Uh, as for, as for the, 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 the latest stuff that he's, uh, that he's bringing up, he should know that I paid for uh, Downing Street refurbishment personally, uh, Mr Speaker, and I, contra I contrast it, uh, I contrast it, uh, any, any, any further declaration that I have to uh, make, I will, uh, if, if any, will, I will be advised upon uh, by Lord Guy. But if he talks about housing costs, uh, Mr Speaker, then the people of this country can make their own decision in just eight days' time, uh, because on average Labour councils charge you £93 more in Bandy, uh, the Conservative councils, and Liberal Democrat councils charge you £120 more. That, I think, is the issue. That, I think, is the issue upon which the British people would like him to focus. Yes, Starmer. Mr Speaker, normally when people don't want to incriminate themselves, they go, no comment. Let me ask this. Let me give... Well, let, let's, let's explore this a bit further, Prime Minister. Let's ask it a different way. Either... This is the initial invoice, Prime Minister, initial invoice. Either the taxpayer paid the initial invoice, or it was the Conservative Party, or it was a private donor, or it was the Prime Minister. So I'm making it easy for the Prime Minister. It's now multiple choice. There are only four options. It should be easier than finding the chatty rat, Mr Speaker. So I ask the Prime Minister again, who paid the initial invoice, initial invoice, Prime Minister, for the redecoration of the Prime Minister's flat? The initial invoice. Prime Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, I've given him the answer, and the answer is I have, I have covered the costs, and I think most people will find it absolutely bizarre. And, of course, there's an Electoral Commission uh, invest investigating this, and I, I can tell him that I've conformed in full with the Code of Conduct, with uh, and, uh, Minister's Ministerial uh, Code, and uh, I, uh, officials have been kept, uh, uh, have been advising me throughout this whole thing, but I think people will think it absolutely bizarre that he is focusing on this issue. Uh, when what people want to know is uh, what plans the Labour government might have uh, to improve uh, the life of people in this country. And let me tell you, if he talks about housing again, uh, we're helping people uh, on the house. I'd rather not spend taxpayers' money, by the way, like the last Labour government who spent £500,000 uh, of taxpayers' money on the Downing Street. But I'd rather... If I, I, I would, that, yes, they did. Yes, they did. Tarting it up. I, I, would much rather, I would much rather help people on the, get on the property ladder, and it's this Conservative government that has built 244,000 homes in the last year, which is a record over 30 years. This is a government that gets on with delivering on the people's priorities while he continually raises, I think, issues that most people would find irrelevant to their concerns. Starmer. Mr Speaker, he talks of priorities. What's he spending his time doing? This is a Prime Minister who, during the pandemic, was nipping out of meetings to choose wallpaper at £840 a roll. A roll. Last week, just last week, he spent his time phoning journalists to moan about his old friend Dominic Cummings. And he's telling the civil service to find out who paid for the redecoration of his flat. The Cabinet Secretary has been asked to investigate 
who paid for the refurbishments in the flat. Why doesn't the Prime Minister just tell him? That would be the end of the investigation. Mr Speaker, it's been widely reported that Lord Brownlow, who just happens to have been given a peerage by the Conservative Party, was asked to donate £58,000 to help repay for the cost of this refurbishment. Can the Prime Minister, if he's so keen to answer, confirm? Did Lord Brownlow make that payment for that purpose? Minister. Mr Speaker, I think I've answered this question uh, several times now. And, and the, answer, the answer is that I have covered the costs. I have met the uh, requirements that I've been obliged to meet in full. And uh, I, I, when, it comes, when it comes to the taxpayer and the costs of Number 10 Downing Street, it was the, Labour, it was the, the previous Labour government, I think Tony Blair racked up a bill of £350,000. And I think what the people of this country want to see is, is minimising uh, taxpayer expense. They want to see a government that's focused on their needs uh, and delivering more homes for the people of this country and cutting council tax, which is what we're doing. And it's on that basis that I think people are going to judge our party on May the 6th. Philip Dem leader Willie Rennie says he'll use a larger group of MSPs to block any attempt by the new government to bring forward the independence referendum bill. The bill was passed in the last session of Parliament as First Minister Nicola Sturgeon paves the way for Indiref 2. Willie Rennie wants a Minister for Recovery to be appointed rather than one for referendum. And it's the stark choice that on day one we know that the SNP will appoint a minister who will drive forward the independence referendum, will be responsible for drafting the white paper equivalent, the 670 page equivalent from 2014. But as we want a first secretary for recovery that will put all that effort and all those civil servants, brilliant civil servants, to good use to make sure we get an economic recovery, an education recovery, but also an NHS recovery as well. So that seems a sensible priority, and that's why people should vote Liberal Democrat and put recovery first. The First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, says it's not a case of a distraction, it's a case of a necessity if a majority of Scots vote for her over the election. But it will be a distraction, because we know what happened last time, that we've had six years of record high drug deaths and the justice secretary at the time acknowledged that he didn't address the issue because it might put people off independence that's an appalling admission and it just shows what happens if you allow this constitutional issue to completely consume the whole of political society it needs a recovery and a focus on making sure that the country can can get over this dreadful pandemic. We won't do that if we're consumed by independence. But surely it's endemic in Scottish politics for politicians and journalists to talk about the constitution and part of the Scottish Parliament to be looking at that whole constitutional issue. It wasn't like that last year. We managed to do it through the pandemic with the suspension of the independence campaign where parties got together. I certainly worked constructively with several different ministers in health and in education and also in the economy. So it can be done. We did it last year. I just want a bit more of last year to last for longer. And I think that would benefit the country for the longer term. Willie Rennie, this is the last time we meet before the election itself. Uh, How's it going for the Liberal Democrats? It's good. Um, I've been up to the far north and to the far south in the election. And what's really quite significant is there are many people who were SNP supporters who are now moving away. And I make a direct appeal to them that if they want to just put aside our differences on the Constitution, let's focus on the recovery. And I think for the next five years, we can do something good together for the country. So come with the Liberal Democrats. We'll put recovery first. We'll put aside our differences and make sure that we can get our education system back up and running again and create jobs, tackle the climate emergency, and of course, deal with those dreadful mental health weeks. Greetings, political punters. If you've ever wondered how the Hollywood members chill out when they're away from the campaign, you're about to find out. I'm Charles Fletcher. Join me next time for a musical edition of The Week in Hollywood. I'll be playing the top three tracks chosen by Scotland's six party leaders. From Atomic Kitten to Joni Mitchell to Frankie Valley, plus the Proclaimers going from misery to happiness today. 
Hear the hits from Scotland's big hitters on the Weekend Hollywood. All right, all right. You're listening to the Weekend Hollywood, and still to come in this half hour, we've got a hard Brexit. Is a hard border with England in prospect next? So, welcome to the border. 96 miles separating non-EU England and a Scotland which, if independent, would want back in. Now, every month we go to Westminster for the session of Scottish Questions. We join the Speaker and members in the House of Commons and in their constituencies. Order! Question to the Secretary of State for Scotland. I'm going to call Secretary Alistair Jack to answer the substantive question number one from Stuart C. Macdonald. Secretary of State. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. We can assess the strength of the union every day as we see the number of people vaccinated across the country continue to rise, as we see the number of jobs we have protected, as we see our vital, ambitious plans to rebuild our economy. I have to say, Mr Speaker, I'm surprised the Honourable Gentleman is asking about recent assessments because the one thing that we learnt this week was that his boss, Nicola Sturgeon, has made no recent assessment of her plan to rip Scotland out of the United Kingdom and the damage that would cause. Right, let's go to Stuart C. Macdonald. Mr Speaker, if he's so confident about the Union, why is he stopping the Prime Minister from coming to Scotland to campaign for it? Have the dubious donations for renovations made that impossible? The contracts for contacts? Or just a disgraceful comment about bodies piling high? Or is it simply that the Prime Minister represents a fundamental problem for Scotland being in the Union? Year after year of Prime Ministers, parties and policies Scotland wouldn't vote for in a million years. All I can say to the Honourable Gentleman is that in all the conversations I have with the Prime Minister, and I have them on a weekly basis, in person, one-to-one, by telephone, his passion for the United Kingdom and strength of the United Kingdom burns brightly. Let's go to Douglas Ross. Douglas. Thank you, Mr Speaker. As of yesterday, 61.3% of Scots 16 and over had received at least one dose of COVID vaccine. Comparing to the European Union, just 24.3% of those aged 18 or over have received a vaccine in the EU. Does the Secretary of State agree with me that the outstanding efforts of our NHS staff, our British Armed Forces and vaccinator volunteers it has only been possible here in Scotland because of the success of the UK vaccination programme and Nicola Sturgeon's claims that somehow an independent Scotland within the EU would have done it differently are complete rubbish. Secretary of State. Mr Speaker, I do absolutely agree with my honourable friend. I think just once on something as important of life-saving vaccines, it would be nice to see the First Minister congratulate the Prime Minister and the United Kingdom Government on our highly successful UK-wide vaccine procurement programme. We now come to the Shadow Secretary of State, Ian Murray. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. I hope you'll allow me to pay tribute to everyone who's commemorating International Workers Memorial Day today and also to wish the Secretary of State a very happy Ed Balls Day, which is also uh, landing on today. Uh, Mr Speaker, on the Andrew Marr show on Sunday, the First Minister admitted that there has been no analysis done on the impact of incomes from separation. That's wages, livelihoods and, of course, pensions. It follows a long list during this election campaign where the SNP has avoided answering questions on currency, EU accession, jobs, deficit, debt, public spending, the parallels with Brexit and, of course, the spectacle of senior SNP MSPs saying last week that a border with England would be desirable because it would create jobs, a rare honest admission about a border with our largest trading partner. And two days in a row, respective think tanks have warned that leaving the UK and giving up our share of UK resources means supercharged austerity. Surely one of the strongest positive cases for the Union is the reality of separation. So can I ask the Secretary of State, if proponents of separation continue to refuse to answer critical questions that fundamentally impact people's livelihoods, incomes and futures, what can be done to inject some much-needed honesty and integrity and truth into this debate for the benefit of all Scots? Well, Mr Speaker, I absolutely agree with the Honourable Gentleman that independence would have a whole series a whole series of negative consequences for the people of Scotland, not just on their pension and benefits, but around currency, around borders issues, armed services. The list, the list is endless. And there's been no assessment done of those things, as I said earlier. We, this is the time we should be coming together for COVID recovery, to rebuild our economy, not even considering an irresponsible independence referendum. 
And, and I would very much welcome his and other political parties uh, willing, if they showed a willingness to come together to work on how we can strengthen our union. I'd welcome that. Ian Murray. And as Sawa has said throughout this campaign, we need to unite the country to deal with the global pandemic. Talking of honesty, integrity and truth, can the Secretary of State take this opportunity to apologise on behalf of the Prime Minister for his let the bodies pile high comment when so many have lost loved ones due to COVID, over 800 deaths in my city of Edinburgh alone? And while he is apologising, perhaps he can tell us, if the Prime Minister has nothing to hide, who funded the refurbishment of Downing Street Flat? And does he think that endemic sleaze in his government, with continual questions about the personal conduct and integrity of the PM, strengthens or weakens the union? Well, I mean, what I say to him on the the body's remark is that in every conversation I've had with the Prime Minister in the last year, his, his desire at all levels has been to save lives and protect the NHS. And I have... In many conversations, both in, in cabinet committees, cabinet and in private, I have no recollection of him being anything other than totally focused on saving lives and protecting the NHS. And he's been entirely focused on this pandemic, uh, uh, his pandemic all the way through. It, without, he hasn't been distracted, as others have, the nationalist Nicola Sturgeon admitting that she took her eye off the ball. He hasn't taken his eye off the ball. He's been focused on the pandemic. He's tackled vaccines in the programme, and he now wants to lead our economic recovery. And those are the things that we should hold him to account for. Those are the things that strengthen the United Kingdom. Right, let's go to John Lamont. John. Uh, Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. There's been much reckless chat from SNP politicians about creating a hard border between Scotland and the rest of the United Kingdom. Now, my constituents in the Scottish border want to see the threat of a border and indeed the threat of another referendum removed. So does the Minister agree with me that the voters of Scotland have an opportunity to remove that threat next week in the Scottish elections by depriving the SNP of a majority and that the best way of doing that is by voting Scottish Conservative? You you won't be surprised, Mr Speaker, that I do agree (laughs) with my honourable friend. And and I would note with some astonishment, Mr Speaker, the comments of the South of Scotland MSP Emma Harper that a border would be a good way of creating jobs, despite the fact that 60% of our trade is with the rest of the UK. And all I would say is if the SNP think that a border is such a good idea for jobs. I'm surprised they don't want to go the whole hog and propose building a wall. Right. Let's go to SNP spokesperson, Murray Black. Murray. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Particularly as we rebuild after COVID, we have an opportunity and a need to make radically different economic choices. Now, after a week of troublesome allegations from the government and the Prime Minister... It should be of no surprise that many in Scotland want to take a different independent path to that of this government. So if that request is reflected in the upcoming Scottish government elections and a majority of pro-independence MSPs are elected, will he and his government respect that as a mandate for a second independence referendum? Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Well, the first thing I say is let's not take the outcome of the election for granted at this stage, and let's recognise that the focus for Scotland has to be on pandemic recovery. We've, we've saved lives through the vaccine pro- procurement. It's now time to save livelihoods and to rebuild as one United Kingdom. Let's go back to Murray Black. Murray. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I, I didn't hear an answer to my question there. You see, the the leader of the Scottish Conservatives was asked multiple times on recent media what would be the democratic path for Scotland to an independence referendum, and he couldn't answer the question. So can the Minister tell us what the path is? Well, you know, I I would say to the Honourable Lady that in 2014 there was a referendum. It was many years since the the, the question had been asked. And that was with the consent of both Scotland's governments and all the main political parties. And I'm glad to say that in in Scotland, people shared my opinion in 2014 and consented to continue being members of the United Kingdom. Right. Let us go to Pete Wishart. Pete. And thank you, Mr Speaker. 
There's only one surefire way for the union to be strengthened in the next week, and that's to get the Prime Minister to Scotland and on the campaign trail. The Secretary of State surely knows that there will be throngs of happy Scots rejoicing in his sleaze-free presence, helping the Electoral Commission with their inquiries, sharing their anecdotes about bodies piled high on the street. What could possibly go wrong for the Scottish Tories? So can the Secretary of State and I start working on the itinerary? Surely Scotland deserves to see its Prime Minister before he inevitably has to resign. Secretary of State. Well, the Prime Minister's diary is not my, as you well know, is not my concern, and he certainly won't be resigning. And I come back to the point I made earlier. In all my discussions with him, his passion for strengthening the United Kingdom burns very bright indeed. David Lynn, number nine. Minister. Uh, Mr Speaker, the UK Government's approach to welfare is to recognise the value and importance of work, making work pay and supporting people into work, whilst giving extra help to the most vulnerable in society. On this basis, we consider that a universal basic income is fundamentally the wrong approach. David Lynn. Thank you. I'm very grateful to the Minister for that reply, and I know that he's very committed to devolution and the respect agenda, and he would want to take very seriously the outcome mm-hmm. of the result of the, the election in Scotland. Now, given that all of the main parties in Scotland have indicated support for trialling the concept of UBI, except the Conservatives. That represents 80% of Scottish voters. Would he accept that if indeed those parties are elected in the next Parliament, there is a mandate and it would just be respecting devolution to go ahead with those trials? Well, I would make two points in response to the Honourable Gentleman. The first is that if he looks around the world where uh, UBI has been trialled, uh, in Finland and Canada, for example, it's not been a success. Uh, and indeed, in Finland, uh, the Finance Minister has scrapped it and is instead looking along something along the lines of our universal credit system. The second point I would make to the Honourable Gentleman is that the Scottish Government already has substantial powers over welfare. Let's go to Angela Crawley. Angela. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The SNP Scottish Government has committed to doubling its climate change justice fund. If re-elected next week, this is £24 million fund is used to help combat the effects of climate change in the global south while we tackle carbon emissions at home. In the year of COP26, will the UK Government follow Scotland's lead and commit to a comparable climate justice fund to help those affected by climate change? Uh, I I, uh, thank the Honourable Lady for her question. Uh, Not only will we uh, commit to a comparable financial commitment, the recent spending review committed to spend £12 billion on green measures to support the 10-point plan and boost the UK's global leadership on green infrastructure and technologies, not just ahead of COP26 this year, but beyond as well. Substantive question to Minister Stewart. Uh, The United Kingdom is and will remain a research superpower, with R&D spending at the highest level for four decades. The Government has committed to invest nearly £15 billion in research and development in 2021-22, much of which will be used to fund the work being led by our world-class universities. Let's go to Andrew Gwynn. Andrew. Thank you. But both Aberdeen and St Andrews Universities stand to lose £2.5 million each as a result of ODA cuts. Among the ongoing projects at risk at Aberdeen is a £1.8 million research initiative into the spread of infectious diseases between rodents and humans. Given that we've recently been reminded of the importance of long-term, well-funded research in responding to a global crisis, what steps are being taken to ensure that these cuts do not impair Scotland's ability to respond to future crises? Well, the first point I'd make to the Honourable Gentleman is I'm always willing to discuss individual programmes with specific universities, and I've done that through uh, the Honourable uh, Lady, the Member for North East Fife, in the case of uh, St Andrews. But the second point I'd make is all the universities he has listed have benefited from significant investments, either directly through UKRI um, or through our city and regional growth deal programmes, looking at uh, R&D into issues like uh, clean energy and sustainable farming. 
We now come to Shadow Minister Chris Hobble. Very much, Mr. Speaker. It's strange, Mr. Speaker, because University Scotland says that the ODA funding is unprecedented and egregious, and yet the Minister stands at the dispatch box and says it's okay because they get funding from other sources. University Scotland say that this amounts to a 70% cut in overseas funding of development for projects across universities in Scotland. So, can the Minister explain? how these cuts are reconciled with the Conservative Government's idea of their post-Brexit ambition to build a global Britain. Well, as I said uh, in response to his, his honourable friend, I'm more than happy to discuss individual programmes with the universities concerned. But if you look at R&D investment from this government in the round, it is significantly up. Uh, and will, Scottish universities are punching above their weight in securing a share of that. We came through the tough times of getting ready for Brexit. Scotland's fishing industry and other sectors are still suffering the fallout from a decision we didn't vote for. This week's support for remaining in the Union increased as questions were raised about what would happen at the border if Scotland chose independence. This from Kieran Jenkins at Channel 4 News. When Scotland voted to stay in the UK, it thought it was staying in the EU too. Brexit is the reason many Scots are demanding another vote on independence. It's also the reason independence now would be so different to 2014. So, welcome to the border. 96 miles separating non-EU England and a Scotland which, if independent, would want back in. Scottish independence is one of the most talked about issues of our time in Britain. And yet what it might mean for the border here between Scotland and England is hardly discussed at all. But isn't one of the lessons from Brexit and Northern Ireland that an issue as fundamental as the dividing line between countries cannot be talked about enough? We've enlisted four experts. I'm a specialist in EU politics. I'm an expert in borders, particularly the Irish border. To answer the big questions. I'm a specialist on devolution and Brexit. I'm a specialist in international trade. For starters, with the Scottish elections focused more on a referendum than independence itself, is it relevant to be discussing the border now? Absolutely. One of the things that voters are going to have to bear in mind when thinking about an independence referendum is that how they vote will affect the future of this border. Now with an independent Scotland, rejoined the European Union, there would be an EU border between Scotland and England. So it's a very, a very big difference. And I'm disappointed it's not being discussed more alongside other substantive issues of independence in this campaign. In 2014, a prankster set up a fake border here. Passport controls weren't on the cards then, and most experts think they'd be extremely unlikely in future. But if Scotland were to leave the UK, what might a border with England look like? If Scotland rejoined the EU, what would happen is uh, the border between Scotland and England would essentially become the EU's external border. At the main crossing points that are designated as entry-exit uh, points between Scotland and England, uh, you would expect to see, in the first instance, customs posts. You would need to have customs officials stationed here. And that means, you know, it means more buildings, it means the ability, if necessary, to close the border. So EU membership for Scotland may have the biggest impact on this largely invisible divide. Is it plausible that Scotland itself would put up no barriers to cross-border trade? No, it's not plausible because if Scotland is an EU member state, then it has to apply the common EU trade policy. The EU would be absolutely strict on the need for checks and controls at the Anglo-Scottish border. It's not the Berlin Wall, it's just something that is going to add frictions to trade. But an independent Scotland would of course seek to reverse Brexit. What else could Scotland do differently? One of the difficulties with Brexit is that the deal was signed eight days before it was implemented. There's no need to do that again. And so to this thorny issue. The figures aren't perfect, but they suggest Scotland exports three times more to the UK than the EU. What are the potential costs of a border here? My research finds that uh, independence would be around two to three times more costly for the Scottish economy than Brexit, reducing Scotland's income per capita by somewhere between six and nine percent. And that's coming from the additional cost of trading across 
the border, leading to higher prices and fewer opportunities for exporting. So there were certainly being new costs to businesses. They would need to um, pay customs brokers to comply with this new paperwork. But what might the benefits be? I think the benefit would be that it would remove the border between Scotland and the rest of the EU. Now, obviously, some of the problems that have been introduced because of Brexit, so for example, in the Scottish seafood sector, would be mitigated um, if an independent Scotland decided to rejoin the EU. So for Scotland, if it was to become independent and to become part of the European Union, it would say it would be part of um, that much wider market of the European Union. I think there's definitely a potential win-win there for an independent Scotland on migration and movement of people, because if Scotland stayed in the UK Ireland common travel area, then people in both directions would be able to live, work, travel freely between England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland. But we'd have free movement of people again with the rest of the European Union. There are many more opinions and disagreements about this border, but few who study it closely think it'll be on the fringes of the independence debate much longer. This week, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon unveiled her plans for the first 100 days of a new administration if she wins next week's election. The first steps include key actions to beat back COVID, increase spending on the NHS and the creation of a national care service for Scotland. Ms Sturgeon told Andrew Marr on the BBC Scotland could make a success of it out of the UK. We look across Europe right now, we look across the world and we see a plethora, a multitude of countries similar in size to Scotland, sometimes smaller than Scotland, lacking all of the resources that Scotland has. And, you know, by and large, almost without exception, these countries are wealthier than Scotland. Right. Uh, they are uh, healthier than Scotland. They are happier uh, in terms of the, mm. the studies that are done. Scotland is one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And if you're pointing me to studies that are about Scotland's fiscal position uh, within the United Kingdom, then frankly, that's not an argument against independence. That is an argument for Scotland being able to take control of our vast resources, make better economic decisions than Westminster governments tend to make on our behalf, and build the same prosperity that countries similar to us enjoy already. So frankly, these are arguments for Scotland becoming independent, not against. To be absolutely clear, of course I am not suggesting that an independent Scotland could not be prosperous. I am suggesting that there are choices and hard choices to be made. Of course. According to, according to the IFS, um, your deficit is going to head towards 24 to 25% of GDP, much, much higher than the rest of the UK, and vastly worse than the 3% that the EU require for candidate states. So there is an enormous gap there to be filled. And yet in this Andrew, election, you're, you're, you're spending money in all directions. You're making my point for me here. I'm you're not. making my point for me here. That deficit that you talk about, and you're quoting, I think, an IFS study that's not actually published yet, if it's Tomorrow. the one I've read about Tomorrow, in a newspaper this morning. But you're quoting uh, a study that is about Scotland's fiscal position within the United Kingdom. It's not a reflection of what Scotland would be like as an independent country. And the, mm. I'm sure it hasn't escaped your notice that the deficits and debt of all countries over the past year has increased as countries quite rightly have borrowed uh, to support COVID policies. The UK debt has gone over two trillion pounds. Now, right now, the taxes that are paid in Scotland uh, pay for health and education, all of those devolved services, as well as reserve services like welfare, mm and pensions. But so there we raise is, the money to pay net, for all there is still of these a net payment coming things. Over the and like every the other side. country, we would have a deficit if we were an independent country tomorrow. Uh, but there's nobody, there's no credible economists in any other country suggesting that countries should manage those deficit, deficits through austerity and cuts. Again, why would Scotland be unique? And you talk about tough choices. Uh, Scotland needs no lectures about tough choices. We have suffered a decade of Tory mm. austerity. Again, a bit like Brexit, completely against our will, where other countries chose to deal uh, with the so, financial crash differently. This is about choices, but it's about so, choices that we make as a country and are sure. able to take ourselves, not choices that are imposed upon us, which is Scotland's experience all too often right now. And that's The Week in Hollywood. I'm Charles Fletcher. Join me again next time for a special edition of the programme when I'll bring you the top three tracks of Scotland's six party leaders. They reveal what's their favourite and why.